2: to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 4th, 2013. This week episode 300 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and joining me in the studios at the controls is our new engineer Jessica Lawson. I got a bucket, got a bucket for the
3: sunshine.
2: That's some new music for uh-huh. you, Jess. Good All morning, right, everyone, good morning. or good
4: afternoon, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's there now. And joining us from Studio C, back in McKee's Rocks, is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik.
0: Joe, it's a, it's a nice fall Friday. It's good to be here.
2: Gorgeous day. And, of course, joining us later for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question. We're going to have an interview with Tim Cordell. I called this one, Cliff, how claims and invoices are scrutinized, what you need to know to win. I'm not sure if that's the right way to go about it or not, but uh, Tim is the president and CEO of Ariston LLC. We're going to talk a lot about insurance claims and how to handle those. An interview with Tim will continue after, of course, our halftime. We've got a guest or two coming in to say hello at halftime. Hopefully, Pete Consigli will be joining us. And then... We'll go back to the interview and finish with our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com.
4: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, cleanfax.com. And CMMonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
2: And Indoor Environment Connections is back—the online source for indoor environmental news at IEConnections.com. And let's—you uh, can also get the show, of course, by streaming from our homepage or downloading from the link on the IEQ Radio page that says "Go to Show." You can also get us from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits for ACAC, ABIH, and IICRC. Send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out a quiz. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
0: a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To Steve Teams Airways Environmental Services in Red Bank, New Jersey, for being the first person to name bioaerosol as the term used by indoor environmental professionals to refer to a suspension of airborne particles that contain living organisms or were released from living organisms. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, October 4th, 2013, has been sponsored by. Triska, the Tri State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website, www.trsca.org. Now for this week's IEQ radio trivia question Name the specialty practice area of accounting that describes engagements that result from actual or anticipated disputes or litigation. Back to you, Joe.
2: Thank you, Cliff. All right, today we've got Tim Cordell. He's the president and CEO of Ariston. Ariston provides consulting services to insurance carriers and counsel in conjunction with large property loss insurance claims. They provide litigation support and expert witness testimony for counsel in support of construction defect claims. They provide project management and owner's representative over the site during restoration, reconstruction, and renovation. Their services also include forensic accounting, document review, site information, and documentation of insurance claims, cost evaluations, and cost to repair, prepare, schedule, statistical, and probability theory determination, and claim mitigation. Previously, Mr. Cordell worked for Munters Disaster Recovery as the Florida District Manager and as the National Large Loss Project Manager for BELFOR Property Restoration. He's got a great background of experience on the front line of disasters and behind the lines now working with insurance companies. This gives him a great unique perspective on how the system works and what contractors need to do to ensure they don't become a pawn in the disaster restoration chess match. I think we've got some music for Tim. Let's see if we've got Tim on the line.
1: Yeah, well, based
5: on that, let me tie up my horse and uh, (laughs) clean the mud off my boots, and we'll get on with it.
0: Well, we thought that the music was appropriate. I guess certain people might refer to you as a hired gun, and, uh, you know, I thought the music uh, would fit. Uh, What I'd like to do, Tim, is I'd like to give the audience, our listening audience, a perspective of what it's like, uh, you know, sitting on the other opposite side of the table from you, you know, uh, you know, you've got your sights on someone and I, I want that person to, uh, you know, have the feeling of, uh, you know, of what it feels like, you know, uh, you know, being a target. So could
5: you comment on that? Sure. But you're going to take away from my, uh, what we actually do joke. Okay.
2: Oh, well, let's start explaining, with what, explaining what we do. What do you do? It's
5: always been, it's always been very difficult. And, uh, of course, it's also difficult for my wife to ha- have to explain to other people, what does your husband do for her? She finally gave up, and she thought that just telling people that I worked for the CIA might be the ticket out. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that only drove them to ask more questions. Well, what does he do for the CIA? Does he kill people? Is he a spy? So she decided ultimately that the best thing to do was just to tell them I worked for the NSA. That way they wouldn't ask me any more questions. Or <laughs> IRS.
2: All, all the iron. Well, Tim, what, what, what is you know? I know Cliff asked what it's like to be in your target, but first, let, maybe you could give me a little background on what it is to be in your target. I, I assume you you look at these large losses from the insurance provider's perspective for the most part.
5: Yes, <clears throat> but um, understand that it's not set up to number one beat anybody out of money. Uh, That's not really what it's designed for. We work on behalf of the carrier and their adjusters and counsel often to audit either on the site as the job unfolds or in a forensic capacity. It all depends on which capacity we are fulfilling and what we do, but the audit profile never changes. For people that have been on the other side – who are in the construction, in the restoration business currently, they've probably been through this before. If they have, they know really what to expect. But what I'm looking for on any claim, regardless of what it is, is I'm looking to know that you've executed the scope that was intended, that the scope that you have addressed is adequate to resolve the claim, and that the money that's charged for performing that scope of services is reasonable under the circumstances and make recommendations to the carrier or to the adjuster. Obviously, we don't make decisions on behalf of the adjuster, but we do supply them with the information we believe they need to know to make a dis- the decision. We're not in, uh, in the uh, art of trying to be confrontational although it's sometimes met with hostility, that we're on a job. But as long as the restoration contractor will provide the information that's requested and it be accurate enough, which is a little bit of a stretch sometimes, then getting through the audit is really not that difficult. I mean, even getting through, for example, we always like to use a water damage platform as a way to teach these concepts because it's what most restoration contractors, regardless of the scale of their business or the size of the loss they always handle, it's what they are most familiar with. That's their bread and butter, and that's the baseline of their operation. So when we teach these concepts, whether we're talking on the radio or we're writing or we're doing an audit, we're teaching that concept. I have actually been on claims where you know, people are fearful. They don't think that they're going to achieve their goal. They're not going to get paid. And it's uh, pay them every penny that they deserve. Pay them everything that, they, that they've they claimed. It's, it's valid. Pay it.
0: You know, Tim, I think there are different size losses in the way that a contractor would handle one size loss versus another size loss. Um, You know, there's simple ones, there's complicated ones, and, you know, I guess a fair question is that shouldn't contractors be notified prior to starting a project what documents, what records uh, the insurance company is going to look for them to produce
5: after? Is that a fair question? It's a very fair question. I don't necessarily believe that you have to tell them that. And here's the reason why. IICRC defines exceptionally well what the expectations are in performance and documentation. And I wouldn't ever ask for anything on a job that's not already predetermined in the IICRC documents, unless it's something I know that's going to be unusual. For example, forensic work after the fact and I've had claims that are two years old before we ever set foot on the property. Those are entirely different because there we're performing an entirely different really task. But for the everyday loss, regardless of whether it's a small ten, twelve, fourteen thousand dollar loss or if it's ten million dollars, the fundamentals don't change. The amount of of accumulation of the data changes, and to some degree, the smaller losses don't require as much detail, so they're easy to audit. They're easy to sift through. Now, we don't hardly ever see any of those because of uh, our uh, business model, but the ones that we do see aren't any better or any worse than the large ones in as far as being able to perform the work, collect the data, and invoice the work.
0: You know, when you cite the IICRC standard you know, uh, for water damage restoration as your guide for um, describing the expectations of, of performance, I don't think we can take that we can use the document fairly by using it part and parcel to say that the expectations in regards to Performance and documentation are one thing, and then the technical rec- recommendations in terms of equipment sizing and, and so on and so forth are another thing. So I think that you either have to buy into the entire document, or
5: uh, w- would you agree that that's fair? Absolutely. I think if you part and parcel it, you don't really need to be in the business. You can't pick and choose what part of a professional standard that you're going to follow. And, and still call yourself a professional, I don't think. And when I say that we audit because we, <clears throat> based on some of those expectations, my audit audit platform is based on part that as well as decade and a half of being on the job, having to put together invoicing, knowing what's going to be checked and cross-checked and verified and validated down to the last penny and the protocol's, some 200 questions long now, address all those. Now, some of those are going to be part of the IICR standard. But in saying that, each one of those have drill downs within them. For example, you can talk about labor, but there's many different kinds of labor on job. There's the employees, direct employees, are the least employees, there's daily labor, and the list goes on. So while the IICRC standard, the S-500, addresses labor in some of the items. There's a much more detailed list that follows that.
2: Tim, I'm, I'm yeah, curious. I'm, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I just I'm not familiar with the list you're talking about. Is that an internal list? Do the contractors have access to that list? Is that uh, something that has been derived from the IICRC standard? Well,
5: It's derived from it, and and let me say that it's not highly technical. I mean, it's not something that any of the larger companies aren't capable of producing because I've seen them do it. But let's just take uh, labor, for example. If it's an employee, if it's a water damage and we're working on on the claim in real time, we're there from, I don't want to say day one, but let's just say that we get there day one. The first thing that I'm going to want to know with regard to labor is I want a rate sheet from the company. I want a list, preferably the sign-in sheet from the very first day on the job, and I want the labor classification codes for each one of those people. I'm going to be using that basic information for employees to track all the way through the invoice. I'm going to check every name against the subsistence, hotels, per diem, lunches, any expenses. I'm going to be checking the rates back against the rate sheet. If there's a category that's listed that's not on the rate sheet, I'm going to want to know why. We're going to look at the dailies, are the most important, because the dailies roll into weekly summaries. The weekly summaries roll into either a monthly summary or ultimately to the invoice. And we drill down all the way to that level to make sure that hours are accounted for each and every day that will total forward to the face of the invoice. Did I answer your question
2: Yeah, I mean, I I just don't, I'm I'm curious, when you were in the industry, okay, um, would your daily work product stand up to the type of scrutiny you are now demanding of others? Yes, but
5: with that said, I'll have to say that I had a good teacher, but that was a long time ago. I got put on a structural failure on a property, a retail property, Venice Beach, Florida. And when the job ended, it was my duty to put the invoice together. So I treated the invoice and the accounting of all the information, the documentation, just as I would have in a prior life. Now, I've seen, without my input, other companies doing this. That's how I know that what we're auditing is what is real today. It's still not done very well. It's still not entirely that widespread, but at least there was an effort made to get to that point. Mine was a little bit more refined, and I can't expect that based on my training. My uh, education was in accounting and finance, and my first job was for an accounting firm in South Georgia. We audited manufacturers, and mostly, we audited banks. Hmm. So... I came with a little bit of an advantage, but I've tried to use that advantage in teaching and auditing. And when I say the audits, it's not as if we just make an automatic strike against it. We try to find out if there's an explanation so that we're not trying to take money away from somebody who has earned it. But yes, as someone who is providing the service, I was providing that level of detail and fighting all the time to get either the company or others around me
2: to do the same. Do, do you see a difference on this with respect to residential versus commercial work?
5: Oh, yes. I, uh, but I should have qualified that by saying I don't do residential work.
2: Okay. okay. Cliff,
5: Never have.
0: Yeah, Tim, I'd like to ask you a question. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a water damage platform. Well, first of all, uh, I don't disagree with uh, the, the way, I don't disagree with your, um, you know, comments in terms of labor and the rate sheets and, and what you're looking for and classification codes and so on and so forth, providing that the contractors agreed to do this
5: job on a time and material basis. Right. And, and by and we should have talked about that a little earlier on. Most of what we'll talk about, how I answer to these questions or look at these. Are from a rate and material perspective, although we do work on large projects that have Xactimate platforms. They are rare, and they are exceptionally difficult to audit.
0: Hmm. What, yeah, the
5: and I think some types of work.
0: Um, yeah, you know, you're when you started out, you know, you were talking about uh, telling the story about your wife. You know, trying to describe what you did for a living. Uh, you know, your wife trying to tell friends and, and acquaintances and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, probably everyone listening has heard this story about uh, someone who was an engineer, and I'm not sure whether this is a real story or one of these urban myths, but, you know, there was this engineer, and, you know, he, he was asked to get some sort of machinery running that no one could run properly, and, you know, he ends up taking out a screwdriver, and he makes some sort of minor, minor adjustment, and the machine runs, and he uh sends his bill and you know I guess the bill is questioned and uh, the reason the, the bill was questioned is they said you know you sure you know you, were, you weren't here very long and um, you know he ends up trying to qualify his bill well you know there was so much with turning the screw uh, the majority of the bill was knowing what screw to turn yes. and there are a lot of there, there, there are a lot of things in restoration that fall into those categories you know, particularly uh, you know, smoke odor removal from inventories and things like that. Where you know, it's really oftentimes something like brain surgery. You know, the person doing the work has to you know be very, very careful and, and know what they're doing because if you don't do enough it's unsuccessful. If you do too much you you damage the inventory. But there can be a tremendous amount of money at, at stake. And I'm I'm just wondering how you handle those particular uh, types of situations if you do?
5: Well, I don't see many of those. Okay. Um, I think they qualify as you're speaking, but if you, if we're talking about, for example, uh, and I'm not sure we are, about basically a lump sum project, I did this, here's the invoice, pay me. Is that what you're suggesting? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm
0: saying that um, you know, let's say that, you know, there's a department store, and the, the inventory in this department store might be worth, I don't know, $20 million or, or, or something like that. Sure. And uh, that, that inventory is significant, significantly devalued because it smells like smoke. They can't sell it as new. People know they've had a fire. Uh, the value is dramatically less. And a restoration contractor who knows what to do and how to do it can go back in there and remove the odor from that inventory so that it can be sold as new. You know, remove the odor from the building so that it smells new and uh you know, it presents an invoice for services which is not an exact mate, uh, but it's a it's a price that's that's agreed upon and, and felt as fair by You know the property
5: owner. Oh, certainly, and and those are exceptional. I won't say exceptional circumstances, but they bring an entirely different level to the game, so to speak. What we're talking about is somewhat of a cost-benefit analysis, but at the same time, we're also talking about an indifference equation. At what point does it become more practical to spend the money to clean the inventory? to make it resellable how much can we spend to do that versus the insurance company just writing a check for the inventory right i understand and that that is that's a very it's um, a very good question because those circumstances do arise unfortunately i've not worked that many times in a situation where the insurance carrier had the inventory it was just the buildings okay I'd like to go back, if we could, I'd like to go back to the
0: IICRC uh, standards, and I want to make a a statement, and uh, I want to know whether or not you agree with it or, or you disagree with it. I would describe the IICRC standard as a best practice standard. And what I mean by that is oftentimes if the work is done and the work is performed as described in that standard, I believe the contractors are overdoing it. And what I mean by overdoing it is I believe they're doing more that is necessary on that particular claim, particularly in the sizing of equipment and numbers of pieces of equipment and and, and so on and so forth that are in there. And I think the industry is oftentimes held to that document. And I remember when that document was being written, uh, there was a joke among the committee writing the, uh, the document that this was the consultant's permanent employment program you know, that that document because all these people were gonna make a living being expert witnesses. You know, not you but people that you know were involved with that document were gonna make a living for the rest of their lives being expert witnesses and experts on the document and so on and so forth. But you know, would you agree or disagree that it's a best practice as opposed
5: to a good practice document? I would have to go with the good practices document, but for this reason. <clears throat> You said earlier about picking and choosing from what's in it that you can't piecemeal it together. You can't pick to do what you want to and what you don't want to do and still have a certain level of achievement or ex- expectations of professionalism. I think one of the worst strikes against this industry, because you've asked about my criticism of the industry, you know, being valid or fair. I think if that document exists. And to whatever degree that argument exists, that there's an expectation that, that should be performed, and to that standard, or else what's the point of even having standard? The same exists every time that you start a new construction project. As we just we just finished two and a half year project that was a repair on 34 units, uh, 700. 34 buildings, 744 units of a student housing complex. <clears throat> there was a big deal made early on about the constructing construction documents and, of course, the procedures manual, the conditions, special conditions. But I will tell you the same problem exists in construction that exists within the restoration industry. Those documents are out there, but no one follows them. Now, while it might even be an argument to say that, okay, it should be just a good practice, I can tell you I've never been on a water damage job of any size where I saw the contractor go to the effort of looking at the sizing chart based on the water class to know what to do. What I typically see on the the middle and smaller jobs even on the larger ones, when all you can do is use small equipment, they throw whatever they've got in the room and they turn it on. Now, if we're willing to live with that as an industry, okay. But I don't think that it does anything to enhance the industry, or the contractor. Well, I, I guess then,
0: my you know my, my criticism of the document is that. The document contains stuff I refer to as MUS, made-up stuff, and that you know, what we have is a bunch of guys sitting around uh, a table who have differing opinions, and they end up compromising. And I believe that you know we end up coming up with classifications of water damage and classes of water damage and you know, equipment specifications and and. And so on and so forth. And you know what happens is, is if this guy has an overabundance of equipment in his truck, I mean, he puts it in the building and providing. I mean, number one, he can't put up put any more equipment in the building than the building uh, electrical power can handle.
5: Obviously, yeah, okay. always a
0: consistent problem in hotels. Right and uh you know in certain situations you can bring in uh, additional power so what happens number one is if he puts in too much equipment uh chances are it's not going to be there as long because hopefully if the equipment's working it should dry the you know it should dry the you know materials faster uh at least you know one at least one would think but uh, my my big concern is really the technical accuracy of the document i, I don't believe
5: it's technically accurate and i well, think it that, may not be But I would rather have that as even a benchmark for getting close to it rather than having people try to make a calculation based on information they don't understand. And I'll I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of that. I did a favor for an attorney friend of mine about a month and a half ago. Um, Something happened in his building. and had water coming in around the foundation. And I went over and I looked at it, and I said, well, I'll tell you where it's coming from but you're going to have to get on top of this because it's been leaking now all all weekend. So he called someone that I suggested. They showed up. And I will tell you, it's, it was a national franchise. I was asked as far as I'm going to go. Okay, I understand. And he got out of the truck. And I said, what size equipment do you have on the truck? He said, well, I've got big and i got a little. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess I have to get back to about the criticisms of the, of the industry. I mean, we could debate the rule or, or the guidelines in the IICRC documents till the cows come home, but here are the observations about the industry. And I, and I think this goes to credibility within the industry and whether people like me are, are being hard nosed on a job and trying to hold someone to that might be another discussion as well, but you gotta ask yourself about this industry. That I believe, and I think most people support me, that I've talked to, that this is indeed a pure competition. It's hard to find that anymore. But almost every restoration contractor, because we don't hold our, our, our banner up a little bit higher and we don't go to those standards, everyone is a pure substitute for the other. They can only compete on customer service and know-how. That's all they can do, because they are not allowed to compete on price.
2: Well, that's a, a Tim. Let me let me squeeze a quick one in before we have to go to our halftime. But I'm just curious. And if it's going to take more than you know a minute or so to answer, just let me know. We'll, we'll go to halftime, come back. What kind of job would be the type that would get you involved? I mean, is it always a big you know, a large loss? Is it um, only certain clients? Is it uh, only certain uh, contractors that are doing the work? How how does that, how does that happen?
5: Usually, we're not going to be involved unless the carrier, number one, wants us there from day one, or, and because it's large and their exposure is large, Mm -hmm. or because there's a fear that it's going to go Sideways in litigation. Okay. Okay. Now sometimes that's important from the standpoint of there's water intrusion in the building. Is it short term or long term? If it's been a long term problem, that probably leads back to possibly a construction defect. If that's the case, there's going to be a question about whether it's covered or not. I see. So yeah. when we audit, and I, I don't want to get too far into the to the standard. The standard is good. I expect people. To do their best to live up to it. Does that mean we're going to count off for it? No. Because I realize the limitations of what we do. That we don't have hours and hours and hours to think about this stuff before we start working. But there's it. a certain amount of things that we cannot overlook.
0: You know, there's one comment that I think I'd like to make but before we go to break. And there's a tremendous amount of training that occurs in the disaster restoration industry. And I think there's training. Most of it is on the technical end. I think that there's a little bit uh, on the business side of it. But I really don't know, Tim, where someone can go and, and learn how to do this. You know, we're going to talk more about it in the second half, You know, putting the job book together. and I, I, I often think that seeing... Uh, a list of specifications in writing, and then actually seeing a book and what's incorporated in it. You know, a lot of adults, um, you know, learn differently. And I think if they had an example of it, and you know, if somebody did that type of training, I think your job would be a whole lot
5: easier. Well, I, you know, I actually try to do that. I, I've actually offered. Uh, I talked to Doug down at uh, Crown. Okay. Here in uh, Orlando. Right. And have offered matter of fact face to face the last time I saw, I saw him um, you know I'd like to be able to help to help these people understand uh, what anyone would be looking for. And that, apparently there's just not really an interest in it at that level. And the large companies, the ones that really do the large losses should be able to train that internally. I absolutely agree with you. I am not a learner by reading. It's tough for me. I like examples. I love to tell stories to get the point across. That's why I opened with the story about the CIA and the NSA because it's an entertaining story people can remember. I try to
2: teach it that way too. Let's uh, let's go to our halftime and then uh, we'll be right back. We're going to thank our sponsors real quick. Then we're going to bring in the uh, the Global Watchdog here and say hello. Yeah.
4: Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers
2: gray wolf sensing solutions who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation
4: visit them at wolfsense.com legends environmental insurance services the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years learn about them at legends-enviro.com and of course our marquee sponsors
2: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at
4: www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
2: All right. We're back with the second half. Before we start back with Tim Cordell and talk a little bit more about insurance, uh, insurance uh, scrutiny of, uh, of projects, we're going to get into some specifics. I want to bring on a friend of the show. He's uh, known as an advisor and facilitator to and activist for the global restoration community. Let's see if we've got the watchdog Pete Consigli, on the line.
1: Hey guys, how you doing today?
2: Great, Pete. Good to have you.
1: Hey, listen, I wanna, I wanna, I wanted to call in today. Well, not only to, that uh, I want to listen to Tim's, uh, Tim's interview, but uh, today is uh, your 300th uh, show, and I wanted to give you guys a big congratulations on that.
2: Thank you, Pete. We really appreciate it. It's been, uh, we just keep plugging away, you know.
1: Yeah, well, I, you, you do a great job, and I think you provide a great resource for the industry in the live interviews and, of course, the podcast. And I know a lot of people who can't always call in at noon, uh, you know, will go download all of that. But anyway, I'm enjoying the interview, interested in uh, in hearing how the rest of it evolves. You're starting to kind of get into some thorny issues, which I think are important issues, you know, that uh, the industry talks about in a forthright manner. I'll stick around for the uh you know, for the roundup and uh, sure. maybe make a couple of comments on that. But the one thing I, I wanted to uh, make all your listeners aware of is Purdue University, um, which uh, is involved in you know our industry's gotten involved in developing a disaster restoration reconstruction management concentration there under the building construction management uh, school, is sponsoring next May, May 20th to the 22nd, um, a international conference on disaster. It's primarily a uh... academic type conference but um... there i'm i'm working with randy who's been on your show before some of the listeners know he's the professor of the drm program to help uh recruit some industry input into this conference and i think some of your listeners uh... you know from both the restoration sector IET types, and from the indoor air quality who've had any kind of experience uh may be interested in submitting a paper and getting involved in the conference next year And um, they're developing the website now, there's some time for all of that, and they they will um, be, uh, you know, that information will become available, possibly you can have it at a future show, or maybe Cliff can include some information in one of his blogs on it, but I want to kind of get a heads up, it's kind of early in the process. If anyone is interested there, Randy instructed me to actually give his phone number at Purdue, and his personal email, I'll do that, and then you guys can kind of get back on to the second part of the show. So anyone who's interested, they can contact uh, Randy Rapp at 765-494-8420. That's 765-494-8420. And his email is just rrapp, R-R-A-P-P, at purdue.edu, rrap at purdue.edu. So anyway, uh, hopefully somebody out there uh, will get involved in that and be able to get a broader message of industry before an academic audience. It's international in scope. There's people from all over the world who've been involved in the tsunamis and a lot of these big disasters, and um, I think it'll be a good opportunity. Anyway, keep up the good work, boys, and uh, as you move on to 301 and beyond.
2: Well, thanks, thanks Pete. Pete. Much appreciated. By the way, Pete, we've got a show next week. We just booked it right before we got on. We're going to bring a, a, an indoor environmental professional and, and contractor in from Colorado to uh, discuss some of the issues that have been occurring after the recent uh, disaster restoration issue, you know, disaster uh, and flooding that occurred there. So maybe we can uh, tie, tie you back in again next week.
1: Okay, great. Good job, boys.
2: All right. Thanks, Pete. Thanks a lot, Pete. All right, let's get back to our interview. Uh, Tim, Cliff, what I'd like to do is just throw it over to you because this is your baby, this is your area, and we've got about 10 minutes before we jump into roundup, so I want to make sure you get your main questions answered. Okay.
5: Okay. All right, well, can I I back up for just one second? Sure, Sure, absolutely. I want to make it clear that when we got called on to look at these jobs or audit these jobs, we're going to ask the adjuster, basically, in, in the most basic layman's terms I could think of, do you care about X? If he doesn't care that the equipment might be oversized, neither do I. I am going to look for the math errors. I'm going to look for scoping errors. I'm going to look for how things just don't match up. For example, you know, a $1,000 bill for diesel fuel, but there's no diesel equipment running on the job. To those type things. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be hard and fast to those, to the S500. I mean, I think that's something the industry should aspire to be better at achieving. But it doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to audit for that to that letter of the law. Okay. Um, now, I, I, I <clears throat> Pete mentioned some thorny subjects. Um, <laughs> well, you know, going back to what the, uh, the industry can compete on, let me ask you, even if you take all of the, the items that we don't necessarily agree on in the S-500, and that's fine, but wouldn't everyone on the phone agree that in the most basic formats, whether it's a $10,000 water loss or a $10 million water loss, that you would expect to see some basic items that are n- not arguable that they should be there, There should be moisture maps. There should be daily moisture readings. Wouldn't you agree?
6: Keep going on that, though. That's a great point. So here's
5: the the question. Why is it so hard to get them? That's the most fundamental thing we do. Now, we're, we're probably going to wind up talking about value eventually. But to me, and Mickey Lee and I worked on this at Munters together, trying to introduce... The Lean Principles, but in different languages, different language that people could understand. That the only real thing that we do as drying contractors is we blow and circulate dry air. That's the only thing that we really do that has any value. Now, in order to determine the outcome, you've got to have moisture readings. I've got to ask, why is it so hard? If it's fundamental... Why is it so difficult to, to get?
0: You know, I don't know. And, you know, the, the thing is you worked at Munters, and I think that the Munters book that I think it was Lou Harriman, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, put together on drawing, is really valid scientific information. You know, it's not made up. It's the true, You know, oh, it's validated. Not, okay, it's
5: not, use, not user-everyday friendly.
0: No I understand I understand that I
5: understand I just when I do see a, a small loss, I'm tied to this student housing complex, probably for eternity, because of my client, and that's I love that. He's a, he's a great man. matter of fact lives up up in Pennsylvania. But the management company has been through about two or three different contractors for water damage and fires. I mean the, the, the basics always happen in student housing overflowing toilets, overflowing washers, and kitchen fires, if they have a kitchen. Right, right. So we had a little fire, but we had it in a bedroom. New company comes out. I've never heard of them. Turned out after research, and I don't want to offend anybody who's listening, they were rug-sucker graduates, okay. they thought. And they fought tooth and nail, not just with me, but with the adjuster, who I know very well. They wouldn't provide us The moisture readings, they provided the maps. I said, well, that's just good enough. No, it's not good enough. We want them. The problem was, in this particular instance, they did do them. But they worked to a drying standard that was 30-something percent below what the industry recognizes and charged two extra days to do it. But on large losses, I've seen it a million times, where your moisture readings, we don't have any. You didn't write them down. No, we took them. We just write them down.
0: You know, a couple of shows ago, we had a a company on Tim and we talked about water activity. And uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of had an aha moment during that show because it seemed to me that when the water activity was reduced on materials to the point that mold wouldn't grow. Uh, at that point, can't we say we're dry? So you know, you can have all the dry standards that you want, and all the moisture readings, and so on and so forth. And in fact, we may actually, as an industry, be over-drying because someone. Can, pardon me.
5: I believe that we are.
0: Yeah, I believe that we are as well.
5: I and sent, I never really uh, thought about it before. But. Well, I sent um, I sent our host uh, a, an article that Mickey and I wrote years ago, and this actually came. Part of the Munters drying principle was included in that as part of their quality management system. Munters didn't recognize the industry standard. There were certain criteria to meet, but we still don't, and I don't believe that you have to get a building, or uh, not necessarily the building, but even the drywall, down to the industry acceptable standard. I think you're wasting money and time. If the air conditioning is, is running in the building, And just what you said, I love the way you said it, if that material can return by itself to the point without compromising the air quality, then you're spending too much time there. I think the Munster standard was 125% of the benchmark of the dry part of the building, Mm -hmm. which normally in a building that's pretty well sealed, uh, that's not affected by the water damage, Normally, a benchmark somewhere in a, in a, a non affected area would be maybe 14, 15, 16%. In new construction, if you have a water event, it's going to be tough to find a drywall surface that doesn't have an 18, 19, or 20% reading in its natural state at that moment because the building's not dried in yet completely. Right. I agree. So, why would you pay? Why would the adjuster want to pay? Why would the client want to pay? For you to dry it to 15 when that's not where it started for. If we're going to stay true to more than, say, the S500, but if we were to say that that represents the pre loss condition, why would you try to restore it beyond that?
0: I I think in in many situations, in in restoration, uh, the contractor must leave things better than he found them for the customer to be satisfied (laughs) because I I, I think you you end mm -hmm. up with all this heightened awareness, you know, cracks and scratches and and things that all all of a sudden, you know, they tell me it was never like that before.
6: (laughs) Well, of course,
5: that's that's why a thousand pictures are awfully good. Right, right. I I think you're right and I think making the statement that you're not going to drive to an industry acceptable standard of whatever that might be, and that's still debatable, I, I think, introduces a certain risk profile to the loss that didn't exist before. And I know that some of the smaller contractors probably aren't willing to take that risk because it could cost them their business. The larger contractors, the national, global, can certainly go out on that limb. But I think it's more difficult, even for a regional player, to make that statement. I believe that we drive too long. I believe we stay too long.
0: I, I agree. I, I agree with you, and I, I, I think that you're right in that, you know, you, the contractor – and I think that you said this, uh, that really contractors shouldn't begin a project until he knows what the end is. You know, I, I think they need to, to know when they're, when they're finished, and I think, you know, that that's good to have a, you know, material standard within the building, you know, we're going to dry to this. Know, to, to what's in an unaffected area. And I, I think that that really makes a certain amount of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense rather than drawing to a specific number.
5: What? And I ask countless if, if I see somebody doing a water loss, what's your drawing standard? I'm sorry? What do you mean? Okay. What's the number you're drawing to? Um, hold on a minute. Let me go ask. Though, and, and I, I have to get back to if the standards were higher within the industry, those people wouldn't be competitors
0: right but I think sometimes it's terminology I mean you, know, you could ask the same question and I could see that based on the way that you ask the question I could see someone perhaps being confused or being dumbfounded because the, their company may not use that terminology. you know would you agree that if you ask the question how do you know when you're done? Or, how do you know when the building's dry? It's pretty much the same thing, and sometimes it might be easier to understand.
5: Well, and that, you know, when I said that, I didn't actually ask it that way because, believe me, I know my audience. The article that Mickey and I co wrote together uh, actually starts off that way. I said, We're pulling off today, the building's dry. Okay, what does that mean? Tell me what that means. So, regardless, going back, just to shorten it, going back, no matter what the size of water loss, the first thing I'm going to ask for is what your moisture ratings are and what number you're drawing to. And if you can't give me that, i got to say, should you really expect that you're not going to have a difficult time getting paid?
6: Absolutely. Let me ask you, you mentioned also timesheets and ensuring that the numbers there are accurate. You talk about uh, right, you know, moisture mapping. What's another key that you look for?
5: Um. Well, I'm big on equipment for many reasons. Why? And I so- know that I know that somebody's going to beat me up for asking for serial numbers.
6: Yeah. Why, why, why are
5: serial numbers important? Well, I think they're. I think they're more important to the contractor than they are to me. And it's probably at this point in the industry, even though I consider this industry mature, I'm, I'm not sure that it has innovated as much as it should, that you should know where your equipment is. And no, the, no, I agree with that.
0: I think most restoration companies probably number the dryers. You know, they, you know, they do, put one you, number you, on yeah, it. You,
5: you certainly don't want to re- refer to the serial number on the machine because that's just way too many digits. But I will say this, that Munchers is the only company that I ever saw they tried to make a move into barcoding equipment and logging equipment based on a handheld device. Mm-hmm. That still didn't tell you where it was, but at least you could tell that it was on the job. You could ask them, give me a list of every piece of equipment by your barcode serial number that's on this job. Now, that makes it easy for me and for them to track each piece of equipment and count it correctly, because mm-hmm. you can only have one serial number per machine to the invoice. Now on small jobs, makes no difference whatsoever. You can count pretty well. But okay, then on uh, jobs where there's seven or eight hundred pieces of equipment.
0: No, I, I agree with you and I, I just started laughing that I don't know that the barcoding is that important but like GPS is important because uh, I think most restoration contractors have uh, you know, had a call from a client, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after they've pulled off the project. You know, you know, kind of, do, you, do you want your fan back or do you want your air mover well, yeah. back because I, they I left guy, it there?
5: When I when I was working at Belfort, I had a guy call me. We had finished uh, a very very big job here in Orlando. One of the guys was living in Middle Georgia, and he called me one day just out of the blue. He he said, "Listen, I'm I'm looking at uh, about six air movers." And I, I just, I'm, I'm in a pawn shop, and I wanted to know if you think we should buy them. I went, Why? What are you talking about? He said, Well, they're our fans. He said, They're only twenty dollars a piece. Should I go ahead and buy them? <laughs> okay. And, and you know, that, we make a joke about it, but that's very, very true. That, that stuff walks off a lot, which costs obviously a lot of money to the contract. Sure, sure absolutely. But also from this standpoint. If you were, if you have a serial number on the machine, whether it's a barcode or just a number that you painted on it, if for example, and I've seen this happen, you've got a room that has a couple of air movers in it, and uh, you know uh, a, low gra- a low grain LGR, and all, but you realize that that room was as wet as the next room over, and it's not drying as as well. Is there a machine performance problem? And if so. I don't really want to see that show up on the invoice. But even more importantly, uh, it's important on on an air scrubber, especially on, obviously, a mold job. I've taught people on every job I've done to record the serial number of that unit on the control card that we're using, either on the the area that's uh, enclosed or on the door that we're using to access for this reason that typically in a protocol you're going to see that if you fail the air sample test that they're going to ask you to reclean and go through the entire process again before they resample. If I fail a second time I have to ask if it's the machine therefore I want that serial number rotated out of the fleet off the job until it's fixed and that's something that the contractor probably needs to know too. He needs to know why he's failed. He's costing him money
6: Absolutely. Cliff, do you think we should go? We better go to the Yeah, over. we can do
5: that. Let's do that. you
6: think you can stick around an extra yeah, five, sure. ten minutes?
5: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just
6: just hang on. Go ahead. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up. Move them on, move
5: them on, hit them
6: up. Let them out, ride them in, ride in, let them out. Cut them out, ride right, them in the crawl. Chess, can you get the watchdog back on here? Let's get Pete Consigli up first. uh, Cliff, what do you think? Hello, Pete. Global Watchdog, do we have you? Yeah, I'm
1: here, Joe. Hey,
6: I just wanted to give you an opportunity to either ask a question or or make a point.
1: Well, I actually have one, one short question, but let me make my point first. You know, it seems that the industry now as part of the maturing process has a proliferation of consultant types who have now entered the industry, working with the insurance industry or working, you know, with other other sectors of the industry that are somehow involved in oversight and review of contractors' bills. And when I said earlier it's a thorny issue, it is a thorny issue, but, you know, um, the fact remains that there are disagreements in the standards and the best practices, the viewpoints, the job site dynamics like Cliff pointed out, which may may change the, some kind of a deviation. Some people do gouge, and, you know, that's necessary. And other times you probably get people who uh doing the right thing, and maybe they unnecessarily kind of get painted with a broad, uh, broad brush, and that isn't a good thing either. But um, the one interesting thing that Cliff and Tim were talking about, and I'm a little confused on it, is differentiating between good practices and best practices. Uh, I'd ask, what did those guys mean by that? Because to me, best practices – Means, uh you know what i i and, and also I, I guess maybe I'm just kind of talking out loud here, but identifying minimum standards you know usually when a standard is put together it's minimum, you can always exceed that, so maybe both uh, both Tim and Cliff kind of addressed their perspective and what those that terminology means okay, Pete, um I believe you're spot
5: on and it probably does need some clarification. I think the minimum standard that you're talking about. Uh, would be the middle layer of what we discussed earlier. I think the best practices is probably, and this is going to be sort of 180 degrees apart from how you're used to thinking about it, but should be the benchmark. And you think of benchmark usually in the opposite term, and that's the absolute standard you're starting from. But benchmark sometimes means that's the ultimate goal. I don't think that you necessarily have to get to that ultimate goal, the best practices, because that's very, very high-level performance, but I think at the very least, you've got to get to that minimum performance level, and that may not include everything in the s five hundred.
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, in, in listening to Ed Cross talk over the years and, and other attorneys who've talked to our industry, the thing they always caution Restorers about is talking about using terminology like state-of-the-art, you know, and, and, and setting it at a very, very high level from a marketing standpoint because that's, that's the type of thing later on that could really come to bite bite someone in the butt, and it's it's very risky. So, I mean, a minimum standard isn't a bad thing. It just means you've got to do this in order to meet a professional standard. And in my mind, that is the same as best practices. I think. Uh, but when you guys said good practices versus best practice, that was confusing to me, and well, it's I, I, confusing yeah, I think of, the, of listeners. I think, that I,
5: and I, you're absolutely right. And it happens in construction too. You've got industry standards, which is basically what everybody does, whether it's right, wrong, good, indifferent, and then you've got best practices. The highest level it's sort of like having uh, you know a BS degree and then you've got a master's degree and now you've got a doctoral degree there's probably that same trilogy that should have some inference into our industry but I'm not sure in some of the examples we've talked about here today that there's a significant part of the participants or quote competitors in the industry that can meet that even baseline minimum
1: um, rating or score. Well, that's a different discussion. Listen, Tim, I appreciate your comments. Hey, Cliff, but uh, I'll sign off here. But uh, I wouldn't mind you weighing in on that. Well, yes. no, but no, I actually, I
0: I I, 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 want to, Pete. You know, my, my you know, my opinion is that the IICRC S five hundred in, in many ways is a best practice document, and I think that it's excessive. In many ways, and I think what what we do is we have contractors doing things that are unnecessary that someone has to pay for, either an insurance carrier has to pay for it, uh, you know unnecessary drawing more more equipment, so on and so forth. I think what a good practice document is is what people in the business feel is reasonable. And I think that they're doing good work, and I don't think that they want to do shoddy work. I think that it's the work standard that, that people are, are, are normally doing. I think, And I think that what we really need in the industry is not a best practice document. I think we need a good practice document that describes what, the reasonable level of care is, and certainly if someone has health issues or, or there are other dynamics that require a greater level of care, fine. You know, I think that the contractor can rise uh, to, that, to that equation. But I think in many situations, we w- the, the industry would be much better served if we had a minimum standard of care uh, and a good standard of care. So I, I think.
5: Uh, can, I, can I make one last quick final comment? I think as long as the document exists and that there are companies who have a IICRC certification number and they attest and acclaim themselves to that standard and with that certification, that it puts them in a legal situation where if they do not perform to that best practices that you just called it. Then they're opening themselves up to
1: a liability suit. Hey guys, let me let me let me let me comment on both of you. First of all, you guys have a different different of opinion on that because uh, the difference between good and best. But it seems when the IICRC first started to work in in the in, uh, in the in the early years of the first editions of the S500, it was designed to be a minimum standard. Of care, and I and I think that's something that happens in industry. What Cliff is st- basically suggesting now is, it's went to a higher level, which potentially might be a disservice to the industry. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe we need to. That process needs to be re-thunk, if that's a word, to establish minimum requirements, and then you know let industry decide if they want to go over and above so that you don't have this liability issue that the certification, you know, guys who are certified under you have at the point that Tim just made. But anyway, it's an interesting discussion. It's an important discussion. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys' uh, honesty and, well, you know,
5: just, you're frankness just,
1: just, just, about it just, just, the, know the you're
5: gonna, just know as long as you're going to set the bar at the very, very bottom for minimum acceptable standards, you're never going to keep the people out of the industry that you really want to keep out because they make the rest of us look bad. If that's I mean, an entirely
1: just, different discussion. I
5: won't comment on that. Okay. And you know, my my final
0: comment on it, Pete, is pretty simple. I think that the decisions on site should be made by the contractor. The decisions should should not have been made in advance by a committee sitting in a room.
5: Well, that's very true.
0: So, uh, no, I, I I don't I don't honestly believe that Tim and I really you know disagree about it cuz I, I think i think we probably have more points of agreement than we would have points of uh, of disagreement on it yes, we do.
6: Well,
1: i i think that's so Cliff. but it's okay to have different viewpoints i mean that's what makes the world go around too no i understand agree
0: do you want to bring in theater <laughs>
3: Yeah. Hi there. Good after. Yeah. Well. Good afternoon. Good day. That. Wherever you may be. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting what I, uh, I, I I listen to, and I'm somewhat involved with it. Uh, Cliff a little bit more than I am. But I think the discussions on good practice and best practice. Uh, I think we are keeping lawyers very happy. Because you, you could have done it a little bit better. Any which way, I don't really, I don't really care. Um, I, I, I have a question which sometimes concerns me. Fortunately, not very often. I do consulting work. Ninety percent of uh, uh, my work is uh, uh, connected with lawyers, for better or for worse. I do my reports. I send them an invoice. And sometimes I wait one month, two months, three months. I have one over here for six years by now, and I've given up on that and hell with them. I never, ever talk to them. That's fine with me. I would like to have the money. I don't have to blow my brains out because I didn't get paid. But anyway, one of the answers I got, and I said, hey, I call," And I said, guys, my report was there on time. You didn't pay me on time. Oh, now I'm talking to the lawyer. That's the only person I know. That's the only teller. Oh, I gave your invoice to my secretary, and she forwarded it to an insurance company. Well, needless to say, now it's out of my hands. <laughs> yeah. What? Now I have a friend, and I said, Dita, one way to maybe do that, and maybe Tim agrees or disagrees." I said, "If you want a thousand dollars." add immediately 15% to it, and then you write on the bottom of your invoice, if paid within whatever, 30 days, uh, uh, 15% off. I don't know whether that will happen. Somebody told me that insurance companies like that. I don't know. But I have another question to the general audience, and Joe knows that question. Last week's, or last time, not last week, uh, uh, the, uh, the answer to uh, what are aerosols which are produced by something that was living or is living, and miraculously I knew the answer, it's a bioaerosol, right. an excellent, uh, excellent question. Now, I have worked through the years with a ton of coal dust. I mean, I looked at it under the microscope, I measured it in coal mines, I crawled around in all of them, And I can go one step further. If I aerosolize crude oil, do I have a bioaerosol in coal dust and in the aerosol that I generate from uh, crude oil? Hey, that was once living a couple of million years ago or whatever it was. I don't care, a couple of hundred thousand years ago. But anyway, so those are my comments right now. Joe? Uh oh. Joe? Was oh, I oh,
6: what? I'm sorry. My mic was off. Okay.
3: What was uh, I cut off? That's all right. I don't care.
6: I, I wanted to ask Tim, did you have a, a a response for Dieter's question on adding, you know, fifteen percent and then having the uh, ability to subtract it off and getting paid faster? Um
5: no. Okay. I, 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 I wouldn't do that, but you'd also have to understand what my very first white-collar job was. And I was sitting in a bank in my hometown calling people every day, asking them to pay their credit card bills, asking them to make their car payments, or I would go get their car. I dog people for money, especially if I know it's going to an attorney. And I document absolutely everything with email, and I uh, keep an email trail, and um, I, I feel your pain. I've actually never been in that position, I've been in a slightly different position. Um, obviously you're never going to work for them again. but uh, I saw somebody do something. who was an engineer, and I don't know how worthwhile this advice is going to be but basically he wrote as a disclaimer on his report and it was always marked draft even if it was a final that this report is still the property of whoever you are in your company's name until such time as the invoice attached to the report is paid in full
3: excellent idea i like that
5: yes that way i mean if you send it in a pdf format they cannot Pull the draft worded the verbiage off of the
3: uh, right. They can't change it, right?
5: Right. They can't. They can't change that. I mean, they can, but it's a lot of effort. About oh, no, that, attorney wouldn't understand it.
3: Sure. Everything can be done, right? <laughs> yeah, and that was
5: that's what he did, um, and
3: I I thought hey, you know that's a pretty good idea,
5: really. I might try that.
3: I kind of like that. Yes. I mean, I I don't really have a huge problem, but I have a couple of problems which really irked me, and I said, my God, you know. I was there on time. I did my job exactly what they expected from me. Uh, yeah, the the standard of care was exactly what they wanted. I did it on time. I sent the report. Everything was okay. The only problem was I didn't get paid yep. in due time. Well, you, sometimes
5: you just got to hound them, and that's that's the only recommendation and suggestion I've got for you today. I might come up with one later. Okay. Yeah,
6: my engineer's got a doctor's appointment. i got to wrap this up here. <laughs> hey, uh, before you go, Tim, we always like to give the guest a – and, Cliff, did you have a final question? you wanted to No, no, I'm done. We always like to give the guest the final say here, Tim. Anything we missed that you'd like to add or any final comments?
5: Well, there is something, but we don't have the time to talk about it. I would uh, love to come back. I really enjoyed this. It's been a very lively discussion. I wish we could have talked about more things. <coughs> um i think our industry's got quite a way to go even considering its maturity and i really appreciated the opportunity to come and talk to you guys i really did thanks
6: thanks for having to tim
5: uh before you go can you
0: give us your website and your phone number in the event that uh listeners would like to get in touch with you
5: oh so they can send hate mail yeah sure (laughs) Uh, The website is just www.aristonllc.com,
0: and there are
5: um, obviously email avenues on the website to get to me.
0: Uh, Can you spell Ariston, please?
5: A-R-I-S-T-O-N-L-L-C.
0: It's an unusual word. Why don't you tell the uh, listeners
5: what it means? Oh, it's going to sound conceited if I say that. It's actually a derivative of a Greek word. When I was a teenager, uh, that was the time period when Aristotle Onassis was very much in the media mm-hmm. all the time. And not that I was a huge fan, other th- and didn't particularly like his business practices sometimes, but he was uh, very famous for OPM, other people's money. Right. I was fascinated by the fact that he reached a point in his life, in a time period in history when you could still do this, to go to mobile oil, and say, I want to move oil for you across the ocean. I'd like you to sign a contract. Nobody asked him if he had any ships or not. They went, oh, we'd love to. We'll pay you this amount of money. So he goes over to the shipyard or to the bank, and he says, I've got a contract to move oil. I need to go build a ship. The first two sister ships with only a 15,000-ton capacity came out of the yard, and each one of them was named Ariston. Ariston something sister and Ariston something else. Huh. And it loosely translates in Greek to the best. The
6: best. All right. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us and being the best uh, the best that we've had on this particular issue. That's for sure. This has been great. We really appreciate it and hope you can come back and join us again. Oh, I would love to, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap it up. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnik. Always a pleasure, Joe. And our engineer at the controls, Jessica Lawson. I want to thank the global watchdog, Pete Consigli, for joining us today and, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Well, most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners, next Friday at noon, we're going to talk with uh, Chris Watson. We're going to talk a little bit about the Colorado disasters that are occurring out there with all the water damage and the cleanup and see how that's coming along and see what rules were bent along the way and uh, how things are coming in the Colorado area. So we look forward to a great discussion next week. It will include some indoor air quality issues, some asbestos, lead, disaster restoration, flooding. We'll run the gamut. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.